0: pirates yes they rob i sold i to the merchant ship minutes after they took i from the bottomless pit but my hand was made strong by the hand
1: this is rumble with michael Mike moore and i am michael follow. moore Welcome, everyone, to episode 200 of Rumble. 200 episodes in this year and a half. Wow. I've had one of the best years and a half of my life. And it was awful, obviously, in so many ways because of the pandemic. Because I was in my own lockdown here just to protect myself and others. But the fact that I got to have this time with all of you... And now in episode 200, we speak again. I feel very blessed and, and very grateful that so many of you, and now we've crossed the 28 million mark of downloads, 28 million downloads of Rumble by all of you. Thank you for that. Thank you for sharing this, this podcast with others. Today, we are going to hear from a thoughtful and forceful author, thinker, activist by the name of Desmond Cole. He and I are going to discuss policing, prisons, and how we must deconstruct these institutions and rethink our priorities. Not only our priorities, but our values and where we actually put our public money. In episode 194 of Rumble, I shared my idea with all of you for the creation of the Department of Public Safety and Compassion as an alternative to what we now know as the police. And in episode 197, I then described my idea for the Department of Restorative Justice and Redemption. I spoke with scholar Dan Berger, and he and I put forth to you an idea or an alternative to incarceration, prisons. These are two ideas I care very deeply about, and as I announced on these episodes in the past month, this is going to be a focus of mine here this year, that we deal with this problem, that we not just hold an annual anniversary remembering the murder of George Floyd, but that we all do something about this. We have to do this. And so I'm going to keep talking about this. And today I'm going to explore the intellectual underpinnings of both police and prison abolition with Desmond Gole. Do not be afraid, my friends. A lot of people do not want us talking about this. And I am talking about a lot of so-called liberals or Democrats who are afraid that if we discuss this issue, we will somehow scare away our fellow Americans into the loving arms of the Republican Party. That is not our problem. Our problem is if we do nothing about this. So, once again, today, in my third episode, in my endeavor to have us not turn away from this, But to face it head on, I invite you to join me in what I think is going to be a very important discussion. Before we get started, I want to do a couple of shout outs here to my underwriters for today for supporting me and my voice and supporting our right, yours and mine, to talk about this difficult issue. I'm so grateful to them and starting off with our first one here our great new underwriter, Liquid IV. This company, they're all about you know good health and, and that's why I'm so grateful to Liquid IV for not only supporting me, but also what they do in terms of providing a service to improve our health, to improve some of the basic things that we all need to do every day, especially in these hot days, to, 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 be, to hydrate ourselves. And liquid IVs come up with a way for us to actually do that. Remember to do that, and to do it with something that actually tastes really great—like not medicine. They have so many flavors of this. What it is? It's a powder. You just put it in your in your water uh, bottle and shake it up with you know these great flavors like lemon, lime, and berry, and and uh, watermelon, and all this. You just shake it up. And when you drink, if you drink 16 ounces of water with liquid IV in it, you get two to three times faster uh, hydration going through your body. The other good thing about this is, you know, I used to drink Gatorade and things like that, but then it's so sugary and it's so, it's got artificial flavors and all that. Not this. This is no artificial flavors, all natural, and has less sugar in it than an apple. So I thank them for being part of what I'm trying to do and I thank them for doing good for the world. Not only do they you know, provide this service for you and I, this company, Liquid IV, has donated four million servings of Liquid IV in response to COVID-19, and they've donated it to hospitals, to first responders, food banks. They don't have to do that, and they do it. And in fact, it's not just the four million servings they've donated here in the US to COVID relief, there's like another 11 million servings that they've, that they've given away globally, and especially in areas where disaster has struck, there is not enough water, and people are dying of thirst, literally. They have also have a, a deal for all of you who are listening to Rumble. You can get 25% off when you go to liquidiv.com, and if you use the code RUMBLE when you check out, 25% off anything that you order uh, from them. Better hydration for you, for the planet, and you can if you don't if you don't get it online, you can get it at Costco. They're you know another source of goodness there, and you can get it bulk there. So please support them. I thank them. Thank you, Liquid IV, for supporting Rumble with Michael Moore. Hey, and I also want to thank our other underwriter for today's episode, long time underwriter ExpressVPN. Thank you for supporting my podcast and supporting. Our right to privacy when we're online. This is the great thing. Why we were so happy when ExpressVPN wanted to back uh, Rumble. For those of you who don't know what ExpressVPN is, let me just lay it out to you very simply. You may think that you know when you're just browsing in incognito mode when you're online that you're protected, but have you ever read the fine print that appears when you start browsing incognito? You know the fine print, terms, terms and services. Well, you should read it sometime because it says that um, your activity might still be visible to your employer, to your school, to your Internet service provider, even when you think you're going incognito. So how the hell can they even call it that? (laughs) Well, anyways, if you really want to stop people from seeing the sites that you visit and where you are online, you need to use this service that we use here at Rumble, ExpressVPN. Uh, it's an app that encrypts all of your network data and reroutes it through a network of secure servers so that your private online activity stays just that, private. So stop letting strangers invade your online privacy. Protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash rumble. So use my special link, at expressvpn.com slash rumble to get three extra months of this privacy service for free. That's express, I'm going to spell it out for you, E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N, expressvpn.com. I don't need to spell that out, right? No, okay, of course I don't. Expressvpn.com slash rumble to learn more. And now, my friends, it's time Redemption to run
0: songs. Redemption songs. Redemption my songs My guest
1: today is Desmond Cole. He is an award-winning journalist and activist who lives in Toronto, Canada. Desmond recently published his first book. It's called The Skin We're In: A Year of Black Resistance and Power. It was the winner of the 2020 Toronto Book Award and a national bestseller. Um, he's just launched a new publication that's that's called Yes Everything, and I hope I I did the uh, uh, the right inflection in how this is to be pronounced. But we're going to find out what this means, uh, and you can you can find this online and just type in Yes Everything or YesEverything.ca. The movement for Black Lives, Black Lives Matter, et cetera, has emerged in the United States. Over the past several years, Desmond has watched and documented it uh, while he's been confronting his own systems of white supremacy closer to home uh, in Canada. And as you know, if you've been a fan for a while, if you've seen my movies, you've listened to this podcast, at an early age, I learned to turn to the Canadians sometimes to get the truth about us. And it's sort of like, you know, like any, you know, the neighbor that lives that abuts your backyard or, lives on the, or you know the people that live on the other side of the fence, you know a lot more about them <laughs> than they realize, in part, because you have to listen to their arguments and the screaming over the fence and, and everything else. Um, and, and you also see the garbage. And, you know, Canada has and the United States have been, you know, if I could personify these entities that are governmental units, friends. We've been friends for a long time. And I think, you know, if you have any friends, that uh, it's often only your best friends are the ones that can tell you the brutal and awful truths that you need to hear. They're the only ones that can just say, honestly, listen to me, you're fucking up. So I have decided to ask Desmond, uh, Desmond Cole here on uh, Rumble today because um, I have been talking about this since last summer and, and now I've decided one of my goals this year is to make... The, not the defunding of the police. That's way too limiting for me. I want to talk about abolishing the police and abolishing our criminal justice system, as it's called, and our prisons, our prison industrial complex. But I don't really know how to do this. And I I have called nine one one when I've needed help, so I say, well, you do want some of the police there, right, to do something if you're in trouble or, you know, I mean, I've had I've had a half a dozen attempts on on my life or, people with weapons uh, trying to harm me. I'm, that's I've talked about this. It's you know, it's um, no secret, um, but uh, I, um, I'm not an expert on this. I'm not a criminologist. I have read and listened and watched Desmond speak about this uh, in a very profound way. And I thought you would like to hear a perspective from our neighbor and to see what we can learn uh, from his thinking about this. So welcome to Rumble, Desmond Cole. Thank you very much, Michael. Explain to the listeners where you, where you stand on this because whatever we, it is that we need when we say we need police, we don't need a man with a gun and a badge in my mind. We need a Department of Public Safety and Compassion. And when we say public safety, I mean we need to redefine that term. Because to me, the fact that we have millions of children that are hungry every day in this country, that's a public safety issue as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, I'm just gonna turn this over to you and I'm just, because I'd love to hear your take on, on this particular issue and understanding that you don't you don't live here with this. Mm-hmm. But as you say in your book and in your writings, you do live within your in your skin, as you say. And that that is not just an American problem. But I think we need some help right now. And I'm so afraid that now that Derek Chauvin is sent away uh, to prison, that we're just gonna move on to the next thing and our attention span is gone. And I don't want it to go away. I want to fix this, and I want you to help
2: us. Well, it's nice to be with you. I, I don't know how much I can do in the time that we've got, but um, I'm sorry to put all this on you. But uh, (laughs) you know, it's uh, it's okay. I'm going to set low expectations for myself, as I often do, and then if things turn out great, then it'll be a bonus. But okay, great. No, very seriously, what we're experiencing whether it be in Canada or the United States, is a relationship with our governments and the people who run them uh, that is based on dominance, I think, first and foremost, that people can't live in good relationship with each other through mutual respect, listening, cooperation, negotiation, That is actually not possible in Canada or the United States. The only thing that's possible is that we dominate people who are not doing what we want and that we be allowed to dominate them really doing anything that we want, including taking their lives. That's the relationship that government has decided is the appropriate one between itself and its people. And what that means is that you have to have police. Police are an imperative because you assume that people are not rational, that they are not acting in your best interest, that they are violent, that they're dangerous, and that that's the way of the world. So you'd be crazy not to have police and to protect yourself. But of course, we know that the police are not here to serve and protect, as they like to brand themselves by the way the police have the best branding of any organization maybe in human history Um, you ask people what do the police do and they say oh they serve and protect do they who do they serve and protect the police's job has always been from the time of the enslavement of black people in both canada and the united states uh, their job has been to police some people uh and you know move, control, surveil, and dominate them so that the ruling class feels safe and comfortable and satisfied. That's, that's just what policing is. Miriam um, Kaba, the police abolitionist and prison abolitionist in the United States, incredible activist and writer, she says that she considers the police to be a death-making institution, right? And she says this about uh, prisons as well, that the prison is also a death-making institution. And I think this is um, the ideological conflict, Michael, is that some people think that the police define safety, and some of us know that the police equals death, surveillance, control, dominance, suffering. You're not going to abolish the police if you think that they contribute to your safety, but being a black person, I don't have to worry about that because I've had a lifetime of understanding that the police don't contribute to my safety. So for me, this is not some kind of really big intellectual exercise. I have to live it. Um, And so do all the black people in the United States of America, but we should also talk about the policing and extermination of indigenous peoples in this part of the world, which again, that was policing, For the benefit of the elite and the ruling class at the expense of the first peoples of these lands who were here for millennia before we were so policing is always um tilted and liberals fail because liberals want to say well let's just make it equal let's have a fantasy where the police aren't really here to dominate they're here to help so we'll train them not to kill people And uh, we'll give them weapons that don't kill you the minute that they shoot you. And we'll put body cameras on them so that if they kill you, we can watch and after you're dead, decide whether it was fair or not. And none of these things are really intended to change policing. And of course, they don't work, but they're not meant to work. So if you agree with Miriam Kaba that police is a death making institution, you would want to abolish it. But it is the fight to... Define and understand policing as such, that I think we're on right now. The fight to take away all that branding of serve and protect, and expose what the police are really doing in our communities. And what is that? What
1: is the? What is it when we? When she says and when you say, when you talk about abolishing the police? Um, what do you? What do you mean by that? And I guess I'm asking you to address uh, white people that are listening to this. And, and maybe some black people who live in neighborhoods that have what we call high crime. But I, I think that the lens here is always the white lens that we're forced to kind of look at it uh, through this white lens. So for the people listening to this and they hear, wow, they've these two guys have just skipped over defunding the police to, to abolishing. What does this really mean? Because, uh, cause I've read, you know, what you've written and, and you have a, such an advanced and progressive way of thinking about how we could live in a better world how we could be uh, a kinder and and more compassionate people if if we
2: rethought this i think first of all you only want to completely get rid of something if you agree that it is harmful so that's the point that i'm trying to start from when i say is this really a death-making institution or is it a neutral institution that could go either way and we should have an endless debate about it? Um, The police kill a lot of people, uh, but that's not really the argument for abolishing the police. The argument for abolishing the police is that it isn't right for some human beings in our society to be able to have a legal right to dominate surveil, control, detain, assault, and kill other people. That actually giving other people, other human beings, the right to do that is itself wrong. And I'm interested because I see that in the United States, um, one of the only countries in the world that um, is still executing so many people the way that it does, that that is starting to fall out of favor in America. And I think it's the same principle is that you shouldn't have the right to take somebody else's life. And when people do take life in our communities, we're, we're appalled, right? We are outraged. We don't think it's right. And then we create a whole system that does the exact same thing as a punishment for taking life. So it's like, how much do we really believe that? But I see how people are trying to eliminate, abolish capital punishment Because they have decided that under no circumstances should anyone have that power over another human being. That's what we're talking about when we talk about abolishing the police. Because the police don't have to kill you to dominate you. They don't have to take your life in order to make your life hell and make you live in constant fear. Control the things that you do without laying a hand on you because they have the ability to harm you and get away with it in law. It's that that we're trying to address. So I think we have to start there. And again, if you think that there are circumstances where a person needs to be able to dominate another person to the extent of taking their life, you are not ready for the abolition conversation, right? But um, it starts from a place of wanting human relationships that aren't based on dominance Well, we always get the question what about the murderers what about the rapists what about the serial killers and mm, i think the appropriate answer is uh, many of them are police the problem with a police serial killer or murderer or rapist though is that they're never going to be held accountable by the society ever because that's the nature of policing because if the guys who have the ultimate authority over the rest of us can be treated just like us, well, they're not really the police anymore now, are they? If police can be fired the minute they abuse their authority, then they're not really the police anymore. And that's exactly what I want, but that's exactly what makes so many people afraid, is like, you know, you have to be able to have that hammer in order to protect yourself. But that's the mentality of the slave master, who's always paranoid that the slaves are going to revolt. That is where this mentality of policing comes from. That's the mentality of the settler who wants to clear indigenous peoples off of their land without consequence uh, and take over that land. Paranoia, fear, and a need to dominate. So um, I think we have to start there in our thinking. And um, as far as, well, what would we do otherwise? This is not a mystery the way that people want to pretend that it is. Because every single day in this world, we actually figure out ways to have a relationship with each other that don't involve killing each other. And even when people are violent or out of line or harmful, we figure out ways to deal with it that are not dominance, killing, surveillance. So the model that everybody is looking for or imagining has to replace the police is not really as complicated, I would say, as people want to make it out to be. Most of the policing activity just needs to stop. It doesn't need to be replaced with something. If if on your walk to work every day, there's a man who has the legal authority to punch you in the face, and after a while you're like, man, you know what, that government employee who punches me in my face every day, we should really do something about him. What would you think if somebody was like, well, what do we replace them with, though? You don't you don't need to replace that person. They just they're extra. They are unnecessary. They're harmful and they don't need to be replaced by anything. And that's what we say about the vast majority of policing activity. It doesn't need to be replaced by anything. Having a person with a gun go to a noise complaint in a community is foolish and dangerous, and it doesn't need to be replaced by anything. However, I would argue that if you want to, for example, respond to somebody in mental health crisis, you don't send the police, you don't send somebody with a gun and a taser and pepper spray, you you send somebody else. And, and we're not replacing, we're actually like shifting focus of the response. Because the police only do one thing, they enforce the law and use as much dominating ability as they have to enforce the law or to enforce whatever they believe to be the law, because just like the Judge Dredd movie, the police kind of really are the law once they get involved in a situation. They do whatever they want. And so we're not really trying to replace that completely over the top power for things like kids having a tantrum in school. Oh my God, if we can't call the police, who will we call? Deal with it differently. Have a different mentality about what's needed in that circumstance and move from there. And then, not that I am have a problem with defunding, Because defunding is fine as long as it's a mechanism towards abolition. Take the funding away from the guys who solve every problem showing up with weapons and dominance and invest in health, invest in education, invest in trauma therapy and counseling for all the people who have been harmed by the police, invest in housing. What keeps people in a society safe, housing or men with guns? Healthcare? Or men with guns it's not even a question but when you live in a white settler paranoid society canada or the united states this, this is the fight this is what we're fighting back against
1: and where do prisons uh, fall into this in terms of the abolitionist movement here um because it seems to be you know the the policing um is the first link in this chain but then they need these uh, large buildings with bars on them to send these people to and to create this false sense of security that now that they've been removed, you know, you're protected. Even though there's so many other ways you're not. You're not protected in our, our day-to-day lives. It have nothing to do with crime on the streets. It has to do with, you know, COVID appears and you lose your job and suddenly in
2: the United States you have no health care. So just like that. Well, I believe that uh, holding people in any form of captivity is always about how you benefit from that. So black people have been in captivity for some form or another on these territories for hundreds of years. And it's not because we're dangerous. It's because somebody profits from us being in captivity. So there are people in the United States uh, and Canada who have been doing things like sewing masks during COVID. And what do you have to pay a prisoner to sew masks all day? Do you have to pay them anything? You don't owe them anything. You can pay them a nominal fee. You could probably get away with not doing it though because who's going to fight for prisoners if you say, I'll pay you and then don't do it. So we've had prisoners in Canada and the United States doing things like making PPE for the public while they sit in a jail cell. And I don't know about different regions of the United States, but I could tell you here in Ontario Uh, A shocking amount of the people who are in jail are on remand, meaning they haven't actually been convicted of anything. So they are awaiting trial. Yeah,
1: we don't have that word here. What, what, what What does remand mean?
2: Remand means that you have been charged, but you haven't been convicted. You haven't had your day in court as they say.
1: Uh, and so but you're still you're held behind bars, you're imprisoned even though you're still an innocent person.
2: Yeah, technically I mean innocence is that's why we have to challenge the whole concept of innocence because how can you be innocent sitting in a jail cell, right? Right, exactly. But, but um yeah, in those circumstances, you haven't had an opportunity under the law to have your case tried, but you're in jail. And what we see right now, Michael, is like things like COVID-19 finds a home in a jail because a jail on purpose is filthy, is cramped. There's no uh, physical distancing possible. There's not sanitary conditions inside of a jail. It's not easy to wash your hands. It's not easy to do the things that would protect you. But because we've created this horror place that where anything is, again, it's like, it's like policing. Policing is about anything goes we can do whatever we want to you jail is the same way but then people go wait wait a minute though wait a minute though. People have to staff the jail people have to clean the jail people have to go serve food in the jail. What if they get COVID-19. So they don't care that the people in the prison will get COVID-19 and die. They're like well what if this affects the general population who isn't in jail maybe we should do something about it. Now of course. What I've been seeing in Canada and the United States is that those are very lackluster, half-hearted efforts, because there is a political taboo against showing sympathy to prisoners. And so prisoners can make your COVID-19 masks and then they themselves can't get protection from COVID-19 and they can contract it. And many people have died in our prisons and jails during this pandemic, and there's been very little thought given to protecting them. So um, people make money off of... The bail program I wrote recently for Yes Everything, the first, it's a new publication that me and my friends have begun. And me and my colleague, L Jones, the first piece that we wrote is an investigation into a Canadian business tycoon. And he is named Prem Watsa, and he is the largest investor in the United States for profit bail system. So jail isn't just about keeping you safe. It's about somebody making money at people at, at in captivity at their expense. And if those people are mostly disproportionately black, indigenous, other racialized groups, disabled people, women who have been abused, well, too bad. Their safety is irrelevant. That's why I criticize the notion of public safety because public safety, just like policing, is not a universal. It's public safety for some at other people's uh, expense. So the prison is just a site to disappear people so that we can pretend that we've done something about problems in society when we've really just disappeared them. And um, we have to abolish that too. And again, just like the police people will say, well, how will we be safe? How will we be safe? And you have police officers who murder people and no one even knows their name and they continue to work. Mm -hmm. We have police officers sexually assaulting people. The police in your country engage in domestic violence at a rate four to five times, I believe, of the general public, who would be surprised? You give somebody a gun and a badge and you tell them that they can do whatever they want. So you're surprised that they have a huge rate of intimate partner violence, but those people are walking around in the street every day. And in fact, they're walking around with more protection than anybody else. So I just think it's about getting real about what we mean When we say safety in the name of in 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 the form of prisons and police whose safety
1: if we were to maybe start to redefine some of these terms guilt innocence public safety police where would you start if you were creating a new it's not just a a dictionary of 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 a new set of definitions but actual actions that would redefine what we mean by public safety what we mean by policing um and and preventing crime or all these things that we're told that they're supposed to do and when generally the police come after the crime has been committed you call 911 and i've always i've referred to them as crime scene cleanup is what a lot and, and then then they go out and try and catch the bad guy but i think most people if they were thinking about their own safety real safety is all the preventive things that you'd want to do so that you wouldn't even have to get to the point of needing somebody with a badge and a gun. I'm just curious how you would, how you would redefine uh, the way that, that we talk about this and the way
2: that, that we look at it. The first thing I think we need to define is the notion of crime itself. What's a crime? What What is crime? So again, uh, if, if, I'm walking through a park and I have a disagreement with a white woman and she feels offended at our disagreement. My criminal? No, but that white woman can call the police and start crying and saying that I've done something horrible to her and there's a black man near me in the park. And of course, I'm talking about Amy Cooper. And then the men with the guns are dispatched and whatever they see fit to do when they get there is their choice. There's no real law governing what they do there's a notion that there's a law out there but it doesn't protect black people so i mean we have to redefine what what crime really even means and i think that maybe it's not the most useful word because it has taken on um a racial uh connotation right right just like people who commit crime are thugs and we have specific names some people get to be heroes when they commit crimes and police officers fall into that category. Police officers who do the most cowardly things, handcuff children, mace children, lie to get people convicted of crimes, so-called crimes. They, they're cowardly, but they're celebrated for their um, antisocial behavior. And they're rewarded with you know, promotions and awards you know, the police officers who shot Amadou Diallo on his porch in New York City all those years ago, mm-hmm. one of the police officers involved in that shooting was later given like the New York's cop of the year kind of award. Right. We do the same thing here in Ontario. Somebody who um, is engaged in a racial profiling incident becomes the lead of a racial profiling police team. Somebody who harms somebody on a mental health call, then goes and joins a mental health liaison unit. This is exactly what we do. We reward certain kinds of crime. So if you can't see what the police do as being criminal, then there's a problem with that word. And we maybe need to redefine and re-examine that. Um, But what I really think that uh, needs doing is rethinking safety for real, rethinking what care means for real, you talked about prevention, and I don't even know if I like that idea. Only because again, if you have this notion that there is this kind of like inevitable crime that is going to take place and that you have to act to prevent it, you're not really focused on just being good to people. You're focused on preventing something terrible and scary and bad from happening and you're going towards that white paranoia that we've already yeah. talked
1: about. See, I think if we were just if we were good to people, that when I hear people say they're afraid of you know, crime or whatever, I just saying, you know, the chances, like if, you know, the person living next door to you, if they're making 50, 60, $70,000 a year, what's the chance of them breaking into your house, stealing your TV? None is the answer. I mean, there's, I guess there is a psychological, or there's some kind of, you know, if you're a kleptomaniac, I guess, maybe, but seriously, if, if we divided the economic pie differently, if, if, uh, people had health care, real health care that included mental health where they could get help. All these other things that, that whatever you're worried about somebody on your street doing, and I don't even think you're worried about somebody on your street doing it. I think you're worried no. about somebody coming from some other street.
2: You're worried about the outside faceless stranger. Yes. Coming into your
1: community. The, exactly. You. You're not worried about little freckle faced Jimmy down the street you're you're worried about something else
2: right if you have money and you're walking late at night you're worried about somebody who doesn't have any money coming and taking your money taking your wallet that's 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 what people are paranoid about but i think it's very short-sighted to ask people well just think about helping those people and then you won't have to worry anymore i don't think that works and the reason that it doesn't work is because that's not centering people's humanity People deserve healthcare, not so that they won't go and hurt somebody. People deserve a home, not so that they won't go and hurt somebody, but because they deserve a home, because they deserve healthcare, because they deserve um, to go to school. Just they Those basic they
1: things, just on their face. Not, not because, oh, I'm gonna do this because it'll protect me from being hurt by them someday. It should just be done because we're frigging human beings, and it's the human right thing to do. It is a human right to be able to have those things. That in and of itself should be enough.
2: Well, it should be a human responsibility to care for one another. That's I think what I mean, right? That, exactly. That, but yeah, but rights and responsibilities are are they're not the same. And I, and I think that's another answer to part of your question here is that we need to move away from a framework of saying we will codify under law that you must not do this. And that if you do do it there will be harsh serious consequences of punishment and hope that people behave when we tell them that we've got to move away from that to moving towards a system that says like a great society is one where we're all responsible for what happens to one another and we take that responsibility seriously and we live our lives that way and so you know this is probably happening in the united states as well but In all of our major cities in Canada, Michael, we're seeing encampments in parks. People are just setting up shop in the local park because there is no housing. Because COVID-19 has really made the austerity that we've all been engaging in our countries. It's made it much more visible all of a sudden. You can't hide it anymore. People are losing their jobs. People are losing their homes. People are losing their apartments, they're um, losing work benefits, and they're ending up in these really visible situations in places like our public parks, camping out, because there is nowhere else for them to go. Now, some people see that in and of itself as a criminal act. And certainly, there are bylaws in our cities that say you're not allowed to pitch a tent in a park. You're not allowed to start a fire in a park to keep yourself warm. So technically, Being poor is still a crime. And what we see from some people is like, I'm not gonna take that approach. I'm actually gonna take a approach that says if somebody's camping in a park, it's my responsibility to go over and be like, hey, are you okay? What do you need? And so as we've seen this devastation, we've also seen unprecedented organizing and mutual aid Of people spending their money to make sure that people who live in a local park have food, have clean water, have a sleeping bag, have a tent, have access to health services, have access to getting a vaccination because they don't have an address or sometimes identification. And they're not doing it because they think, well, if I make sure the people in the park get vaccinated, I won't get COVID because that's not a one to one. They're just doing it because they feel a responsibility. How do we foster a greater sense of responsibility to counteract all of the people who are only acting defensively and out of self-interest? I think that's really one of what we want to ask ourselves. How do we foster that? And I believe, um, you know, I read a lot of folks, uh, including, I mentioned Miriam Kaba earlier, um, Andrea Ritchie, um, there's so many people doing amazing work talking about these things and talking about what we could do with all the money, the billions and billions of dollars that we're giving to the police, we're not giving it to ordinary people. We're giving it to the police. And we don't give it to the police because we think they'll keep things safe, Michael. We give it to the police because we think that they morally deserve it. And we deport mm, people who right. are sleeping in the park because they morally don't right. deserve it. But defund.org, defundpolice.org is an amazing website that people can go to uh, and start reading about, well, what would happen if we started shifting our resources, what would happen if we did things differently? And this uh, coalition of Black, mainly Black-led groups in the United States at defundpolice.org, you know what they're doing? They're doing things like police have military grade weapons in our cities. You're talking about these kind of things in Bowling for Columbine, like this idea that you can just, you know, defend yourself in your city by like, do you need a tank? Do you need a nuke? What do you need? But the police literally have tanks. They have chemical weapons. They have military grade weapons. So people who are doing a defund movement are like, take that away. and Let's spend it on something that's actually going to help people. Let's think about our responsibilities to people instead of protecting ourselves from a boogeyman let's take money um, and divest it from the police and spend it on the things that we truly truly value and care about spend it on care spend it on support for people and i just think this is the attitude that we really need to continue to foster because defunding is great uh, as long as it's a means toward never having these kinds of human relationships again why do you think the white
1: liberal pundits um, have been just railing against this concept of uh, defund the police and and warning other liberals or lefties do not use this term or we're going to lose the next election I mean they've been very forceful uh, and have it's really gotten their backs up um, uh, because uh, they they think this is the way that the
2: Republicans are going to rally white people out uh, to the polls next year. Yeah, I mean, I think you've answered your own question. This is about politics. It's it's um, defund is a losing message to white liberals, and they don't care about the ethical underpinning of defund. They just think white people aren't going to listen to that, so don't do it. It's the politics of expediency and it's the politics of not having to give a fuck because it doesn't affect you in the same way that it affects other people. So I don't really care if white people here defund and get scared. You hear that society has been pointing a gun on black and indigenous people for hundreds of years. And we're thinking that maybe we're going to take that gun away. And that makes you scared? That's your problem. That's not my problem. I don't have to sit around and waste my life convincing you that I deserve to live without society's gun pointed at me every day. Without society watching and surveilling me every day. I have a right to live without all of that. And if you're not sure, that's your problem. But what do white liberals care if this isn't their world? If it's not their family members in jail? Is not their children being followed around by the police officer in their schools, walking the halls, what do they care? If they feel like they're safe because certain people need to be followed around, certain people are scary. Certain people are antisocial. Of course that they're not going to go for this as a political message, but this is not a political slogan. You know, this is not about expediency or winning a political argument or winning through incrementalism again. If Miriam Kaba is correct, and policing is actually in and of itself a death-making institution, well, you don't try to reduce a death-making institution incrementally and hope that 40 or 50 years from now, things are different. But I'll tell you what, Michael, I, I studied these things. In the 1980s and 90s in Toronto, we were talking about hiring more police officers of black heritage to change the way that policing looks. We're talking about that 30 and 40 years ago. Liberal ideology about reforming police incrementally is completely bankrupt. And I would add insincere. Liberals don't want to address this problem. They want us to shut the hell up about it. That's all they want. So who the fuck cares what they say? We're on a mission. If they come on board they come on board but how many miles are we really going to gain begging liberal people to acknowledge our humanity as black people it doesn't make me feel good to wake up in the morning and be like that's what i'm going to do today so they can argue that they're the majority and we need them and i say like you know go to church and get over your damn self really like i'm tired of being told that we need white people in order to change the world because it's just this equivalent of like you know when uh, one kid owns the the soccer ball or the basketball and says i'm going to take my ball and go home Well, we'll play a different game then we'll need to play your game if you have so much authority and control but you want to delay for the next 30 years and have an intellectual argument an ideological or um, you know, argument about like, do black people deserve this kind of safety or will it put me in safety? We don't have time for that. We just don't have time. White liberalism is a bankrupt ideology that doesn't have any answers. You're telling us things that people tried 30 and 40 years ago, not caring or being invested in whether it really works or not. Right. So if putting more black cops on the force works or not, white liberals don't really care either way, cause that's not their bag. If. Um, releasing more people from prison helps or not, what do they care? they rather feel more comfortable so that there's no liabilities on them in case we let out a bad person. So, right. You have all kind of control over people's lives and you're just like, you know what, keep them under subjection. Cause I don't want to have to take a risk of them being bad and harmful. That's how much power people have. And they want us to negotiate with them and I'm done with that. So. If white liberals are not on board, they'd better get the hell out of the way.
1: That is exactly how I feel. And I just turn the TV off now. I don't want to listen to this. Um, I don't want to. It sounds like a bunch of whiners and it's usually white men. And frankly, I know the demographics. I know the statistics of this country. I know that by somewhere before 2044, um, you know, just a little over 20 years from now, the majority of this country is not going to be white. So get with the program is what I try to tell white people um, because you're living in an old world and that world was racist. Uh, That that world was a colonial world uh, that believed in genocide. This is a country that was founded in it, founded in genocide and built on the backs of slaves. And if you can't just admit that simple fact I don't know what to do with you other than to say, well, you know what, about 30, 32 percent of the U.S. right now are people of color and uh, there and white women make up maybe maybe 35 percent of the population. And and if a majority of them, not all of them, because we know um, Trump got a lot of their votes, uh, but just just enough. To add on to that, that 32. When you have 32 percent of the country who are people of color, um, it seems like what is that? Another 18 percent. You're at 50 percent. So can we can we get uh, just a few good white men, <laughs> and maybe a close to a majority of the white women, and and that's and then we build our policies and we get our elections around that. Instead of I have to listen to this every day about. Well, we have to reach out to the
2: Republicans. No, we don't. Well, okay. I want to I think through this a little bit because, um, I mean, you know, for me, I don't really see the battleground, the major battleground being um, electoral politics. So we need to get to 50 plus one and then we get all the policies that we want. Barack Obama had a supermajority right in t- 2008 he well maybe didn't have 60 votes in the senate i guess but no he, yeah but he had enough he had enough but it, it was squandered well but he was afraid of people in his own party who were yeah for example loyal to police loyal to insurance companies and banks right. loyal to the healthcare lobby wall street and, yeah. and and so i think this is a cautionary thing for us to think about in a lot of different ways america is not going to demographic itself out of these issues America is a country whose, as a legal entity, is founded upon white supremacy and settler colonialism, as you just mentioned. Canada is exactly the same. Uh, You don't change that by changing the demographics of the country, but leaving in place the ideological foundations and legal system of that entity. You can't, Barack Obama presided over thousands of black people being murdered by the police and was too scared to do anything about it. Barack Obama said, I'm gonna close Guantanamo Bay and then was like, oh man, you know, you build this like site of complete human suffering and it's really, really hard to undo it. Like, so I guess I have an excuse that it was really a lot harder everybody than I thought and I'm sorry, but you know, I couldn't get this done. Everybody thought the Black man, well, I didn't think the Black man was going to come in and like make magic and make it rain. But some people did. And some people actually expect that of us as Black people. They expect the Black people to come out every election because they're Black and have an ideological bent that saves their own lives and votes in their own so-called interests. But there are also Black billionaires. There are also Black CEOs. There are also Black judges and police officers and prison wardens that don't actually want this system to change because they're also benefiting from it. So I don't think the answer here is just to hope that in 20 or 30 years, there's enough black and brown people that we don't have these policies anymore. White supremacy is an ideology. It doesn't reside inside of the individual. It's it's more akin to like the air we're breathing. And right. Americans- so how do we
1: how do we eliminate that?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think this is why I wrote a whole book. And I think this is why I've spent the last 10 years of my life um, fighting against white supremacy, settler colonialism, fighting against notions of patriarchy, trying to um, understand the harm that they are causing and how malleable they are, right? And how um, transferable that they are, that it doesn't have to be a white person sitting at the top of these entities and reinforcing everything at all. And sometimes it works better because when you have Barack Obama, then everyone, oh, you can't say he's racist now because it's Barack Obama. We have a lot of black police chiefs here in Ontario recently. That's the new thing is you want to get the black uh, demonstrators to shut up? Well, you start putting in black police chiefs because then if the black police chief does something, it can't be racist. None of these things are true. The black police chief, though, knows that it is his job to reinforce the white supremacist settler culture, and that if he doesn't do that, he can't get the respect of his officers.
1: Right, well even in the Derek Chauvin trial, the prosecutor, there's a white prosecutor, there's a black prosecutor that stood there on day one and said, we are not putting the police on trial or the police system on trial, Um, we are putting one individual here on trial. Uh, that's all that this means. And this and this sort of, they didn't say it, they didn't say it, but it's sort of, look, friends, you see, it's just this one bad apple. And the rest of the batch of apples are good. And But we, the criminal justice system, we're going to get rid of this bad apple for you.
2: And then things will be okay. I think the problem is that a lot of people even who wanted to see Derek Chauvin convicted believe that they believe that you know how many people did we see after that decision saying I hope I hope that this is a step toward change why would it be if you needed the Derek Chauvin trial to um, have some kind of epiphany about policing then I I think you're probably still part of the problem
1: right right
2: and um that is that is what i think is wrong with the attention that gets paid to each of these individual cases they are so few and far between anyway michael i mean the derek chauvin trial is exceptional because it even happened that's not going to happen to most police officers who take a black person's life Mm -hmm. an independent person who is black and scared having the courage to stand by and film that incident independent of a police body camera. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And 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 handing that information over, like uh so that it can it can it can be seen and used by other people. Like I'm talking of course about Demela Frazier who stood there and filmed what Derek Chauvin did to George Floyd. Right. That's not going to happen in most cases where a police officer murders a black person. Um, but this is all, again, if this is an ideological exercise for people, then they haven't decided that the police are the killing institution that Miriam Kaba says. They still want to be proven yes or no on a case by case basis. And they want to go home and think about it while the police continue to take our lives, which is why we can't wait for them. No, but, right. Um, so what do we do? Cause I don't want to wait. I don't want to
1: wait another minute. And I, want, and I want the institution, not the individual officer. And I want white people uh, to own certain things. I, I want fellow men to own certain things. And maybe we begin to change our attitudes as human beings.
2: I believe that the most effective organizing happens in the places where we exist and spend a lot of our time. Derek Chauvin's trial is an abstraction that makes it seem like whether he is found innocent or guilty is going to determine what happens for you in your town near or far from there. And it's just not true. The cops in your town aren't waiting for the Derek Chauvin verdict to decide how they wanna treat black people. They already know how they're gonna treat them. And so it's about organizing where we live. One of the things that I've been so inspired by where I live is that all across Canada, in the last 20 or 30 years, we've begun to have armed police officers in our schools. Americans think that Canada is so different from their country, and they don't understand that Canada, in a cultural sense, worships the United States and is jealous and covetous of the United States, and wants to be like our neighbors to the south, wants to be the big, bad, strong one that everybody is afraid of. And we emulate a lot of practices, we've emulated all of the austerity. I mean, I won't even say emulate. Canada has its own reasons for wanting to starve and impoverish Black and Indigenous people so that they can drive your cab instead of being a doctor or, you know, like there are reasons for this that are not about following the United States' lead. But anyway, what we've seen in where I live is that like people in their local communities have seen these cops in our schools and been like, I don't want cops in my schools, And I'm not gonna wait to like see if another city or region gets rid of them. My kids go to this school and there's a cop there and we're gonna get them out. And across the last several years in Toronto where I live in Hamilton, just down the road, in Peel region, which is just west of us and contains a a huge uh, black and brown population. But as far as west as Vancouver, on the west coast people are getting police officers out of their schools and they're doing that organizing locally because you're not going to get police officers in another city's schools out by organizing from far away you're going to do that by appealing to local schools local school board officials right and right. having a local confrontation that says this is bad for our kids and by the way We don't have public health nurses in our schools. We don't have meal programs in our schools. Again, what keeps people safe and well, and what do people deserve? Not give black people a meal program instead of police so that they don't hurt or threaten you, give it to them because they need it. And that's a local thing that's happening. The local organizing about defunding police is happening city by city. So when a group like defundpolice.org says that they've secured like almost $850 million of divestment from police departments, that wasn't everybody watching one decision or city council on TV and being like, wow, we should maybe do that. It was people in their local communities being like, yeah, fuck the police. We need money for schools. We need money for roads. We need money for health care. We need money to fix buildings that are falling down. We need money for housing. The local fight, the place where you spend the most time, people who live in cities and towns where the biggest part of the economy is a prison and thinking, you know what, we don't want to live in a prison economy. It's the people who are living there who are like, we need to change this. We need actually a different way for us to live here. And it has to be that way, Michael, because... No one's going to let outsiders come in and tell them things like this that are so central to their lives. Right. Right.
1: No, this is an important
2: point. Very important point. The way, and, and, and again, the sensationalism of things like a murder trial that is broadcast on TV. And I grew up during the OJ era. So OJ's trial set the standard for like this idea that we're all going to participate by proxy, by watching. And that we're all going to be changed forever by the What utter Hollywood nonsense. It's the local fight in your community around the things that are affecting people for you. And that's why I brought up the example of people helping people in their local park. No one's going to do that work. But the people who live near the park and see somebody out there in the elements being like that person needs a hat. That person needs a coat. That person needs access to water. I'm going to make sure that it happens. And then when I see my local public official isn't helping, I'm going to get on their back and say, why aren't you doing this work? Instead of neighbors in your community, we all pay taxes to you. Why aren't you doing this work? It's 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 to stop. I got so many calls the day that Derek remember, I live in Canada. And I got so many calls from media because of the work that I do the day that Derek Chauvin's trial ended, asking me how do you feel? How do you feel? And I turned most of those down because I just don't want to pretend like the, 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 the fight to abolish the police turns on these sensational moments. It turns on people doing the work every day um, and organizing in communities that are um, oppressed that people don't really give the spotlight to sex workers fighting against the police, queer and trans people fighting against the police, homeless people, drug users fighting against the police. You really want to build a strong coalition, Michael, you you align yourself with the people who are facing the most hardship from the current system and you ask them, what do you need? And then you just keep doing that for years and years and years and you build some power. That's what I see working. And that's what I want to be a part of. I don't want to have to like Twitter react as a way of hoping that things get better. Yo, I'm, I'm out there on Twitter. People know that about me, but that's not where I do my most important work. My most important work is the things that people don't see. It's the calls and the late night communications and the organizing of things with people and the sharing of information with people and, and building community to community and reinforcing that by being like, Hey, look, they did it over here and they won. Hey, look, these guys got a win on the cops out of schools thing today. Isn't that awesome? We can do it too. Hey, look, they divested $3 million from the police budget this year when they were going to actually increase it. Is that what we want ultimately? No. We want the whole enchilada, but we're going to celebrate our wins too, and we're going to show what's possible when we organize locally.
1: Wow. This is uh, its so powerful what you're saying and the importance of doing this in our daily lives in in our own personal lives where we live where our kids go to school where we can have the most impact i'm so glad you've said this it rarely gets said and um you know we're all we're good about calling for large demonstrations and and let's all get out in the street tonight and whatever and that's important too and i'm not dismissing that but the local the local part of this and taking responsibility for our our brothers and our sisters our neighbors it's i don't know i thank you for saying that it rarely gets said and i
2: just want to add one thing which is the the great irony of white liberal society is that it is black people going out into the street every day for months after george floyd was lynched yeah that made the chauvin trial something that white people even paid attention to right black people hadn't done that White people wouldn't have even paid attention to the trial as meaning maybe there will be change, maybe there won't be. Like, Black people did that because they were so horrified that this continues to happen and that we have to see the videos of it. Liberal society is like, oh, the police are killing people. I'd kind of like to see that so that I can decide for myself if the killing is good or bad. So put a camera on. That's that's their only. That's right. what I mean. Say for thirty or forty years, we've right. just heard the exact same thing. So, meanwhile, black people are out there in the streets, willing to sacrifice their lives against those very same police forces to say enough. And one minute, they're told that they're thugs and criminals and looters, and the next minute, everybody's covering the Derek Chauvin trial. I wonder why that happened because of the leadership and the tenacity of black organizing and so that's why I say I don't care what white liberals think we're leading the way anyway aren't we we're showing the light we're showing what needs to be done and what's necessary and sometimes even if they don't want to pay attention to us the struggle is so compelling that even they are forced to so we as black people have to know that we're on the right path we have to trust our ancestors and the people who have written about these things and studied these things and organized around these things before us We just have to have the conviction to keep going and to do anything it takes to fight for Black life because the police, the prison system, and corporate America and corporate Canada has demonstrated that it will do anything, by any means necessary, to maintain its control and dominance. So we have to be just as committed on the other side. Right, right wow
1: uh this has been amazing um and, and we've gone over a full hour here and i i just I, um i could go on even longer and, and i hope that you could come back because uh, i this is going to be a series uh, every month uh i'm not going to stop talking about it and i'm not going to certainly not be afraid to say certain words and redefine certain terms and i'm asking people to come with me and listen to this and go to, as as, as Desmond said, uh, websites like defundpolice.org, yeah. and you will see it laid out there. And, and you will read this, and you'll go, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> Why don't we do that? I know you will. If you have a good heart, you will. But I want to thank Desmond Cole, our guest here today on Rumble, for helping us all turn our heads a bit and rethink this. Uh, it's We're capable of doing that, my friends. And Desmond, I can't thank you enough for the work you're doing and keep doing it, and we'll stay in touch here with you. And we'll celebrate those victories, like you said. It's so important, even if they're small victories sometimes. It's important to do that because when one parent hears in one school district that another group of parents in another school district were successful or when one town was able to take away the tank and the military armament from the police that wasn't necessary because we don't want to live in a police state. We already sort of know that we do. Well, we do. So at least, can we at least take the visual away just to make us feel better for, no, we. I don't want people to feel better. I want us, we have to do, full Monty here with this and um and we're going to do it but uh it's 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 um i thank you for the job you've done and are doing desmond and uh thank
2: you thank you very much for the opportunity michael and the change is happening it's not going to happen it is happening it is happening we need to expand on it i'm with you and
1: uh uh, thank you and uh and and we'll stay in touch wow that was That was an incredible conversation with desmond please share it with others this is such an important subject my friends and we all have to get busy and do something about it there's a lot of good people working on this issue probably people locally find the people in your town your city and and get active please do something about this i want to give uh, one sort of sad but important update on something that was mentioned in the conversation and something that happened here in the last 24 to 48 hours. Um, uh, Before I do that, um, (laughs) we've got one more. Where are all these underwriters coming? Thank you to all the people underwriting Rumble. We're so grateful. And I want to thank just one more before we we close out today. And I want to tell you about something that happened in the last day or so here. But first, a a big shout-out again and a thank you to Raycon. So I'll say this, a lot of us are going to be on the move again, hopefully as early as this summer. And one of the things I'll be taking on my trip back home will be my Raycons, these wireless earbuds that not only fit my ears really well, better than anything I've I've tried before, but also just because the quality of it is so cool. So whether you're listening to podcasts or music, maybe even meditating, A pair of these Raycon wireless earbuds provide the crisp, powerful beats at half the price of these other premium audio brands. And Raycons are also built to last for a 24-hour battery life, too. So you can get through the day, the night, long road trip, and they don't need to be recharged. So Raycon, for those of you who are Rumble listeners, is offering 15% off all their products You just have to go to buyraycon, that's B-U-I, buyraycon.com slash rumble. Got to put that in there. And you'll get your 15% off anything that you want to purchase. So buyraycon.com slash rumble. Tell them uh, that you're grateful too for supporting rumble. Well, as you know, I have spoken since the week of George Floyd's murder over a year ago about the brave young woman who stood on the curb and filmed his execution. Her name, as you know, is Darnella Frazier. And through this year, you know, we've been in touch with her family, offering our support in any way that we can. I suggested back at the time that We as Academy members should recognize her for making the most important piece of nonfiction film of the last year, maybe of the last decade. It galvanized the world. She showed us what happened and she did it with such courage. She has been recognized by others. Penn America uh, gave her a special award. She got a shout out uh, at the Oscars. But then when it came time for the Pulitzer Prizes last month, they actually gave her a Pulitzer Prize citation for her work of journalism. Journalism, the informing of the rest of us about the truth, about what's going on. When she took the stand during the Derek Chauvin trial and she spoke about how every night it's hard for her to sleep She says a prayer to George Floyd, begging for his forgiveness as if she still feels that there's something else she could have done, should have done to stop the killer cop and how that still is so destructive to her because she has to think every day about not just that this could happen to George Floyd as it did, but she said, do you remember on the stand what she said? I don't have the quote right in front of me, but she said, that could have been my father. That could have been my uncle. That could have been any of the black men in my life. It was so powerful. And then sadly, stunningly, on Tuesday night of this week, just a day or so ago, her uncle was killed by the Minneapolis Police Department. No knee to the neck this time, no lynching, just a out of control, reckless police department doing one of those crazy police chases that they do all across this country, trying to chase down some bad guy that they've got to catch. And of course, the cops, reckless, out of control, drive their car, Right into Dardella Frazier's uncle and kill him. An innocent bystander on his way home, dead tonight. Dead. Because the police and the way they police hasn't changed. They won't change unless we make them change. Now, you know, if some of you are saying, well, Mike, uh, you know, I mean, this must have been a bad guy. Cops were chasing him, so obviously the guy was guilty. They had to catch him. Well, I have to tell you something. I've never understood the police chase. I mean, I guess it makes for good TV. But why are all the rest of us put in danger? And I mean in danger of our lives because they're trying to catch somebody who was speeding made a wrong turn or they suspected you had marijuana on him. I mean, just go down the whole damn list of why they chase people in a car, a deadly weapon. I have said for some time, and maybe a lot of you won't agree with this, but I'm sorry. I don't believe the police should ever be chasing somebody at 70, 80, 90 miles an hour through a city. Ever. what is it what is it that they've got to get that's that valuable where it would be okay to kill another innocent human being on the street or driving their car because they had to get their man we don't live in that world anymore they can they, 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 we have devices we have drones we have things we have license plates they can just find out where he lives where he's going remember when the police in Atlanta Shot the guy who ran away in the Wendy's drive through. Why? They already had his license. They already had him pulled over. (laughs) They knew where he was going. Just go get him. What's the point of shooting them in the back? What's the point of running them down? Whoever is trying to get away, they're not going to get away. We have so many surveillance cameras and so much you can call ahead to other officers you can put up roadblocks. Tell me one reason why we need to conduct these crazy chases. Well what if you kidnapped a child? That's even worse. You're making that person that, that person the kidnapper drive 80 miles through the street because you're chasing with the child in the back seat of the car. You're not saving the child. You're putting the child in danger of dying. I said to Basil before, I said, I've tried to think all day, what is one good reason to justify the police driving like maniacs like that to catch somebody? The only reason I can think of why the police should be on a chase to catch somebody is if the person they're chasing has won the Heisman Trophy and appeared in the Naked Gun movies. That's it. No, I'm sorry. I'm being friggin' facetious here. Not even then. I said, actually, I said the only reason is if they, the cops, they were, the radio dispatch said, um, the man in the white Ford has stolen the cure for cancer. Uh, he just drove out of the Mayo Clinic where they've just discovered the cure for cancer. And he has stolen the cure for cancer. You must go get him. Okay, because that's going to save like millions of lives. And the guy's just stolen it. You still shouldn't try to drive in such a way that you're going to kill another human. being. Well, you know what? At least we killed grandma there on on the corner of uh, Pine and Oak Street. That was sad. 89 years old. She lived a long life. Uh, She's dead now. But we got the cure for cancer. I don't know if I can even uh, justify that, that it's okay to essentially murder somebody with your cop car accidentally. Because even that guy, you're going to catch that guy, you're going to find the car, a drone in the sky is going to (laughs) find this guy, and we'll have the cure for cancer. There's no reason, my friends. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of, I'm sorry to be just messing around with this, but I'm so upset, I'm so upset that Darnella had to lose the very uncle that she talked about on the witness stand at the Derek Chauvin trial lost him because the police had to drive like crazed maniacs to the streets of Minneapolis to get their man, not worth it. My friends never worth it. We have to start rethinking this. We have to start doing this differently. This is a small example I'm just, I'm sorry. I sound upset because I am upset. And, and, you know, and I thank all of you and everybody in this country and around the world for the recognition and the support that you've given Darnella. I mean, it's been great. But we have to get to the root causes of these issues. All of these issues, the ones Desmond and I were discussing on this episode. If you want to support Darnella Frazier, some good people a number of months ago set up a GoFundMe in her honor, and I will have a link in the description to this podcast to that uh, GoFundMe page uh, for Darnella. There's already over $700,000 that has been raised for her. It's called The Peace and Healing for Darnella. The scars and the, and the pain and the suffering that she may have to carry with her the rest of her life because she had the courage to stand there with her, her camera and her phone and tell the rest of us in the world just how evil and how evil in such a common and daily way the people that are supposed to be protecting us have either a knee to the neck or their foot on the pedal driving fast through the city and killing, killing her uncle. So sad and so wrong. That's about all I can deal with today. I'm so grateful that you listen to this podcast. Please share it with others. Send me your feedback. Send me any ideas, things you'd like me to cover. Uh, just write me at mike at com. That's my email address. I read all the emails please send me an email. You can send me a voicemail. There's a link on the description page also for that. And let's get busy, my friends. So much to do. All my love and appreciation to every one of you listening to this and who share with me the intense commitment to create a better world. This is Michael Moore, and this has been Rumble. Rumble.
0: Yes, they robbed I Sold I to the merchant ships Minutes after they took I From the bottomless pit, How long shall they kill our prophets While we stand aside and look Yes, some say it's just a part of it These songs of freedom Songs of freedom